You're listening to the sermon podcast from Real Life Church Pullman, reaching the world for Jesus, one person at a time. Hey, good morning, Real Life. <clears throat> My name is Adam McKillary. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. It's been a while since I've been up here, and your poor performance right there really doesn't make me feel very good. Good morning. Okay. Thank you. feel a little more at ease now. Uh, let's pray, and then we're going to get into the Word. Father God, I thank you for this day, Lord. I thank you for the opportunity to be able to stand up here and to be able to share what it is that you've been working in me on uh, through your text the last several weeks as I've been studying for this time. And Lord, I know you've been preparing each and, one of, each and every one of ours, our hearts and our minds to receive your word today. And I just pray that everybody here is open to what it is that you have for them. And uh, Lord, that they will walk out of these doors changed. In Jesus' name, amen. So this spring, and if you've been uh, gone for a little while, this spring we are working through the book of Acts. And for the last month, we've been really talking about what has God been doing that's new through this book, through these people that have been following Jesus for three years, God starts something new. And we started this series off by looking at that, and we saw back at the day of Pentecost, when all the disciples were waiting around for the promised gift that Jesus had told them would come, and the Holy Spirit came upon them, and the Holy Spirit filled them all up, and they became like little mobile temples. Do you guys remember that? You guys been... We are little mobile temples to this day. And God started to bless what they were doing and they were adding thousands of people to be followers of Jesus that day and every day after that. And he kept working through these guys and we got to see how Peter and John were in the temple and preaching some more and they, they healed a guy, a, lay, a guy who had been lame for most of his life. And the religious elite did not like that so they arrested him and brought him in and said, don't do that anymore. But the big thing that they really drew from that encounter with Peter and John was that these were just ordinary guys that had been with Jesus. And we talked about how we can be just like that. If we abide in Jesus as he, and he abides in us, we can be the same way for those people that we interact with on our daily lives. We can be recognized as people who are with Jesus. And then last week, we started to see how this story starts to change. Things are going well, but then there's this guy, Stephen, that gets arrested. And Thad just briefly touched on Stephen's story. But Stephen gets arrested in his tribe before the Sanhedrin, and he, they get really mad at what he says. And so they drag him out in the streets or out of the city, and they stone him to death. And because of that, a great persecution starts against those who say that Jesus is the way. And people start to spread all over the place and go. And we got to follow along one of those stories with a guy by the name of Philip. And we saw Philip go into a region that the Jews did not like to frequent, into Samaria. They did not like the Samaritans. There were not good relations there. And Philip brought the good word into there and people's lives were changed. And then we got to see how he got to be uh, <clears throat> the first Star Trek guy in the sense that he was working with the Ethiopians, eunuch on the road, and then God beamed him out. 
No, no Trekkies in here? Are we all Star Wars fans? All right. Anyways, we got to see how God used Philip in an act of obedience, go up to a, a chariot that he had no idea what he was doing and overheard the Ethiopian talking about reading from God's word and Philip made himself available to answer questions. And that guy made a choice that day, then and there, to follow Jesus, and he was baptized, and Philip left. Today, we're going to see how this story continues to unfold. And we're going to look at a guy who thought he was on God's side, who thought he was doing what God would want him to do, but he has an encounter with Jesus, and Jesus puts him back on track. So let's go to the text. We're going to be in Acts chapter 9. If you have your Bibles or your uh, phones, you want to pop onto those, or if you can read it up here in your notes. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing, breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. I want to stop there for a little while. I've been in the church for most of my life, and I know that I've heard this story about Saul and the road to Damascus, I don't even know how many times. I can remember sitting at vacation Bible school with the flanograph up there and Saul walking along the, the way and Jesus appearing. Like, I, I know this story. I've heard sermons about it. I've talked about it in home groups. But something that I never really stopped to, to do before was ask why. Why in the world is Saul willing and wanting to go to Damascus? It's really easy to just cruise right over this and not really think about this, but Damascus is a long ways away. Check out this map. Jerusalem, Damascus. That's about 150 miles through desert, mountainous terrain. This is one of the possible routes that Paul could have taken as he went up to Damascus. 150 miles by foot. That's like walking from here to the Tri-Cities. Just for the hopes of maybe finding people there that are members of the way. What is motivating him? Why is Damascus really that big of a deal? I think it would be beneficial for us if we spent a little bit of time just looking at who Saul was at this moment. We know who he becomes. He becomes Paul, an important figure in the New Testament church. One of the main reasons why we all get to sit here today. The work that he did and started back then started the spread of the gospel so that we could be here today. But that's who he becomes. That's not who he is at this moment. And I want to look at what about, what's the big deal about Damascus. So let's, let's talk about Saul first. Last summer we did a sermon series called Forever Changed, and we had one on Saul at, and during this, this exact moment in his life. 
when he encountered Jesus. And I'd encourage you to go to our website, rlcpullman.com. Go to the sermons tab. You can find it down there on the bottom. It goes into a lot more depth than what I want to cover today. I just want to hit a couple of the high points that I think are important for Saul's life at this moment. So Saul is a Jew who is also a Roman citizen born in Tarsus of Sicilia. Tarsus is in modern-day Turkey, down in the southeastern corner of it. And Tarsus, at this time that he was there, was known as a, a pretty happening place. It was uh, like a university town, just like Pullman is. Greek influence. So they really, really thought it was important to study philosophy and rhetoric. And so Paul, uh, Saul would have definitely had some of that influence in his young life, but that's not where he got his formative years of training. At some point in his young life, he decided to go to Jerusalem because he was a Jew and he wanted to learn about Torah. And so he went and presented himself to a rabbi to try to be his disciple. And the guy that he was chosen by was a guy by the name of Gamliel. Now, Rabbi Gamliel was a big deal in the first century. First century Judaism, he was the deal. He would later be called Rabban Gamliel, the rabbi of rabbis. Not only was he their spiritual leader, but he also had some influence within political realm as well. But one of the other reasons why he was such a big deal is that he was the grandson of a guy named Hillel. Hillel is a name that you would probably recognize if you've been hanging around real life for the last few years. Hillel was a rabbi during the first century before the Common Era, and he had a contemporary rabbi named uh, Shemai. These two guys debated a lot about what the best way was to interpret scripture, how to live life, when you would talk to a rabbi, the, what he called his yoke, the way that he would interpret scripture, the way that he would want you to, the lens he would want you to use as you looked at scripture on how to live life, they would always say, you, they would ask you, what is your greatest commandment? What do you think the greatest commandment is? And the rabbi would respond with his yoke, how he would interpret scripture. Shammai used to say, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And the second one is to obey Sabbath. So for him and anybody who decided to follow him, it was all about obedience. The best way to love God was by obeying him, no matter what. But Hillel said no. The greatest commandment is, yes, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. But the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. All the law should be looked at through a relational lens. That is how you should interpret scripture. That is how you should live it out. So Gamliel, being the grandson of, grandson of Hillel, definitely, definitely held to this same belief. You can kind of see elements of that in his own life when we look at, I think it's in Acts 6, when Peter and John are standing before the the Sanhedrin again and they want to beat him up and take him out, Gamaliel says, no, no, we can't do that. 
It's like, look, if these guys, if this movement is of man, it's going to die out just like all the other ones did before. But if this is of God, there's no stopping this. There's nothing we can do. Let's just wait and see what happens. So that's who Gamaliel is. That is not who Saul is at this point in time, is it? Saul is a guy who stood beside Stephen as he's getting stoned to death, approving of what was happening to him. Saul is a guy who's spearheading, kicking in doors of homes in Jerusalem and arresting men and women and taking them to prison to persecute them further. Saul is not walking in the footsteps of his rabbi. He has become a zealous Pharisee, someone who is very passionate about about God and loves him deeply, but he believes that the best way to love God is to hold a strict line of obedience and make everybody else do the same. And so when he sees this movement starting in Jerusalem, he, he looks at it as heresy. Who are these people that are trying to say that this guy is the Messiah? And so he does whatever he can to try to stop that from happening. And he becomes such a main player in the persecution of Jesus' followers. So that's Saul at this point in time. Why Damascus? Why is Damascus, a, a Gentile city, 150 miles away, so important for him to go to? Well, Damascus has been a crucial point, a place in his, throughout history. Today, it is the capital city of Syria. But back before it even became a city, it, used to, it was just this oasis in the middle of nowhere where a lot of trade would go through. People wanting to go down to the south or to the east or the west would travel through this area and they'd stop at the oasis and they'd visit with one another and then keep on going. Eventually, a settlement started there and a city grew. It is one of the oldest continuously inhabited cities in the world. And different empires have fought and taken control of this one city for centuries. At this particular time in history, there's a a group called the Nabataeans that control Damascus. And they're down into the area of Arabia as well. But it is this major hub of trade There are people from all over the place, all over the world, that when they're going down to Israel or Egypt from the east, they're coming through Damascus. They're coming out of the west, they're going through Damascus. Damascus also has a very huge population of Jews. We know that based off the the fact that that Saul wants to go up and and go to the, all the synagogues that are in the city. But one of the other things that we know is that the Jewish historian Josephus, who wrote about the revolt that came about in the 60s of the first century, talked about how there were 10,000 to 18,000 Jews killed in Damascus during that revolt. It was a very large population of Jewish people living in that area. So it is this ideal strategic city 
to be able to try to get the word out to anybody and everybody. No wonder Saul wants to go there. No wonder Saul wants to get there as soon as he can so that he can make sure that this rebellion against God gets squashed as soon as he can get it to be squashed. It's very important for him. To love God, people have to follow the rules. And there's people up there that he's hearing about that are not doing that. Let's keep reading his story. Verse 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias said, I have heard of this guy. I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with the authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who have heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on, his, on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. Saul, thinking that he was on mission with God, thinking he was doing the right thing, had a detour put in his way on his way to Damascus. He met Jesus on that road and was forever changed. 
like we talked about last summer in that series. But what I love about what Saul does next is that he doesn't go back to Jerusalem. He doesn't sit on the sidelines. He gets involved immediately. He hangs out with the disciples that are in that area and he starts preaching the gospel. Luke says in verse 23, after many days, people wanted to start to kill him. What what we don't know from this reading, but if you go over to Galatians, Paul talks about what happened between verses 22 and 23 of Acts there, that he actually went down into Arabia and preached the gospel and then came back up into Damascus and spent three years there preaching the gospel there until he had ticked off enough people that they wanted to kill him. As I was, I was preparing for this sermon in the last couple of weeks, I'm like, God, what in the world do you want your people to take from this? We've, we've learned about Saul before. We know that he was changed. What in the world do we need to take from this? And I've just felt like he was telling me, we need to be a Damascus. Pullman is just like Damascus. How many people do we have from all over the world that come to Pullman, Washington? A ton. For school, for work, for whatever. A change of scenery. I don't understand that one. (laughs) I'm from Montana. There's no scenery here. But we have a very unique opportunity being here in Pullman, Washington, don't we? We're just like Damascus was, where people from all over the world are going through Damascus. That's why Paul spent so much time there. He wanted to try to infect as many people as he could with the love of Jesus Christ so that when they went back home or to their next place that they were going to be at, they took that with them. We have that same opportunity here. And look around this room. There are a lot of people in here that probably won't be here next year because they'll be transferred for work, They'll be done with school finally and off to start their new job. Or they'll want to change the scenery. There's lots of reasons, right? But just imagine. Look what happened to Damascus. Look at what happened exploded out of that area. That little tiny corner of the world. Because all the people that were going through there and they were buying into what they were selling, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he does change your life, and it's worth sharing with other people. We have that same opportunity here. We're going to go to communion. If you're serving communion, uh, if you want to head out there and start passing it out, At Real Life, we do communion each and every week. And if you're new here with us, we have what we like to call an open table. 
And all that means is that you don't have to be a member of the real life church Pullman. You just have to be a member of Jesus's family. And if that's you, we would love for you to take the elements as they pass by you, hold on to them, and we'll take them together here in just a moment. But as these guys are passing this stuff out, I have a couple of questions that I want to talk with you through. These are a few of the questions that our home groups this week are going to to use as they discuss the sermon today. The first question is this. In what ways can you identify with Saul? I know there's been a lot of times in my own life that I can remember thinking to myself, I am not worthy of being associated with Jesus. The things that I have done in my past disqualify me, discredit me. I cannot do this. But when I look at Saul, a person who was actively seeking out people, going to their homes and dragging them out and throwing them in prison and persecuting them to the point of death, And God still used that guy to spread the gospel. I think he can use me. I know he can use you. Irregardless of what your past tries to tell you about yourself. Maybe you are, maybe you've had a time in your life where you felt like you were on mission with God and you just felt like on point and he had to show up in a real way and redirect you. And if you have had that happen, man, share that. People need to hear that stuff. Second question is this. What is keeping you from engaging with this Damascus? What is the roadblock that you're not willing to hurdle? Is it the fact that there's a very high likelihood that if you built relationships with people that it would hurt if they left or you left? And so it's just easier to not engage with other people? This is a, the real life church families. We have real lives all throughout the Northwest. We have a real life down in Texas. And we hold dear to this idea of relational environments. Trying to create relational environments where people can plug in, get to know the community that they are a part of, and do life with other believers. That's what our home groups are for. Are you not engaging in your Christian community because you're worried that you're going to get hurt? I can promise you, you will. Every relationship comes with a risk of being hurt.
but we have this invitation to engage. Jesus gave us this invitation to engage. And that's why one of the reasons why we get to do this every week is to remind ourselves of that invitation to engage in our relationship with him and with our relationship with one another. Because the things that you could learn here from the people sitting around you, you can take to the next place that God moves you. Paul didn't stay just in Damascus. God moved him to Jerusalem, back up to Tarsus, and all over Asia Minor. We're not going to all stay here for the rest of our lives. But are you going to take the opportunity to learn from the people that God has put in your life so that you can take that to the next place you go. So on that night he was betrayed, he took the bread, he broke it, gave thanks, and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup. He said, this is a cup of the new covenant. Do this whenever you drink in remembrance of me. Father God, I, th- I thank you for this morning again, Lord. What a fantastic privilege it is for me to stand here and share what you've been working on in me. Lord, I pray for myself and I pray for my brothers and sisters out here who I know are going to wrestle through this stuff this week. I just ask, Lord, that you give them insight and discernment into whatever it is that's holding them back from engaging in the mission that you have put them on, from engaging in the community that you have placed them into. Lord, have them, give them the courage and the boldness to see that thing and to get it out of the way so they can be on mission with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us at rlcpullman.com and by connecting with us on Facebook. Until next time, have a great week.